From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. One thing I love about the Catholic Church is that word Catholic, which of course means universal. I love the idea that you can walk into any mass in any language anywhere on the planet and have a pretty good sense of what is going on. But while these things are important to me intellectually, almost always when I think about the Catholic Church, I'm thinking about the American Catholic Church, or Catholics who look and pray like I do. It takes intentional effort for me to work on a truly Catholic perspective. My guest today has more experience with the church around the world than pretty much anyone I've ever met. Father Agbonkianmege Orobator, SJ, is the dean of the Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara University. This school is one of the two Jesuit theologates in the United States, which means it's a place where Jesuits in formation from all over the world pursue theology studies alongside lay students. Before arriving at JST last August, Father Orobator spent seven years as the president of the Jesuit Conference of Africa and Madagascar, leading the Jesuits on that continent where the order is growing fastest. A theologian originally from Nigeria, with a doctorate from the United Kingdom, who specializes in ecclesiology, the study of the church, Father Arobator is the author of a number of books, including Theology Brewed in an African Pot and The Pope and the Pandemic, Lessons in Leadership in a Time of Crisis. In the first few months of his tenure at the JST, Pope Francis invited Father Arobator to attend the Synod on Synodality in Rome, where he was a voting member. I asked him about that experience and about synodality at work in the church in Africa. I also asked him about his goals for his leadership at JST, and I think you'll see from his thoughtfulness and deep faith on display in this conversation why Father Orobator has been tapped for big leadership roles over and over again. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Father Agbon Kianmege Orabator, welcome to AMDG. Thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for the invitation. I'm excited to, to talk to you. And I had been seeing you in some news coverage recently around the Synod on Synodality, the phase, the first phase with bishops and other Synod fathers and mothers, uh, finished uh, in October. Uh, where you were a voting member at the Synod. And so um, just maybe you could start by describing what that participation was like for you and maybe even like what surprised you about that gathering, that particular phase of the Synod uh, entering into that. What was something maybe su surprising um, that you weren't expecting? It was uh, for me personally quite uplifting to be part of the Synod in Rome and particularly striking for me was the diversity. I would say the stunning diversity of the church that was represented at this gathering. It gave me so much hope and confidence about the future of the church to see the synodal hall just bristling with diversity of peoples, all ages, of all situations and, and locations, women and men, young people, um, 
priest, of course, and the regular cast of uh, bishops and cardinals. It was a wonderful diversity, a representation of the church as best as you would like to see it uh, anywhere. I, I know that diversity can also include diversity of thought, opinion, faith expression. And I'm curious for you being in that space with people from all over, with all different spiritualities, was there anything that you heard or someone you met that kind of changed the way you think about something that was a, that reframed something for you or made you look at uh, an issue related to the church today in a new way? Well, I mean, certainly for me, just engaging with a variety of people during the synod helped me to form this image of the church as a living reality. You know, we are not dealing with an entity that is sort of mummified or maybe preserved in time, but it's really actual, it's real. Um, it was just a sense of being a part of the church as it makes its way, you know, a part of the church as it makes itself and remakes itself. And being in contact and in constant conversation with people during the synod just gave me this, just almost like a revelation, uh, a vision of the church as a reality that is real, that is live, and that is unfolding. And I'm again, I'm sure there are disagreements within that family. You know, I've heard the church described as a, a group outing of a billion people. You're going to have disagreements about mealtime, right? So there are things. Um, how did when that when those came up within those conversations, what was the, the spirit like? Um, around trying to kind of find some some common ground or hearing people again with uh, different views. Can you describe well, what that was like? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right. A, a, a conversation of people from different contexts uh, represented at the Synod was certainly reveal and did reveal points of divergence, differences in opinion, and some real tension. And it is the nature of synodality that we are able to surface those differences, those divergences and tensions without degenerating into some kind of adversarial encounter. I think what the synod did very well was to create a suitable space and what was so special about this space, as I saw it, was that it was a space of prayer. It was a, a space of listening, of dialogue. And that didn't mean that people didn't have sharp disagreements, um, strong divergences, and sometimes irreconcilable differences. But at least we remained seated at the same table in the same space, trying to work through these challenges with regards to specific questions or issues or situations in the church about which we thought differently. 
So I know you are a theologian and that one of the areas in theology you've done work is ecclesiology and a synod could be the life of the church and how a synod is kind of ecclesiology lived. And I was reflecting uh, on the great Jesuit Avery Cardinal Dulles's five models of the church, um, which are, if folks haven't read the book, um, institution, church as mystical communion, as sacrament, as herald and as servant. And we can't get into all of those, but I'm curious for you at in the synod and not just there in Rome, but in your involvement through the synod process leading up to then, are there any of those models of church you feel like are particularly uh, alive within the synod process, knowing that we need all of them and they work together? Um, any of those models resonant for you uh, in your participation? Well, you know, I am familiar with every dollars as well and, and use this work around these five models of church. But, you know, looking at the church today, I would say if every dollars were still with us, he will revise his five models. Oh. Uh, yes, I do believe that because it's 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 at this point with a church that is on a synodal journey, it's 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 quite counterintuitive to try to create fixed models for this kind of uh, situation, and so I, I like the image of a church that is on the way, you know, which it, which fits very well with the whole idea of synodality, a church that is on the way, on a journey, and thinking that this journey is not made alone, but is made as a community. And yet within this community, there are spaces where people are able to express their gifts, make their contributions, and contribute their wisdom to the ongoing progress and advancement of this church. So I like the church, the image of the church, as, as the people of God on the way, on a journey. I think that's something that every Dulles would, you know, resonate with where he's still with, with us. Well, that, that sounds like an Ignatian model, the idea of a pilgrimage, uh, Ignatius the pilgrim, and that we as community kind of on that way and as you're well. right and and i would add to that that again in a way there's really nothing new in that because that's coming right out of vatican too you know it's that that idea of a church that is on a pilgrimage and i think one of the things that i take from that as an important lesson is that we cannot in any way um harden any idea of the church into a particular concept that we then refuse, you know, to to expand or to to modify or to change. You know, every Dulles talks about this, the church as an institution, which dominated the history of the of the understanding of the theology of the church for centuries. But now, we have to be able to see a community that is, in a way, able to remake itself, taking into account the context that people are in, the issues that people are dealing with, and the meaning that people are seeking for their lives as members of this community. I think some of the cover, the news coverage, say, in the both the secular and the Catholic press at the conclusion of this phase of the Synod when the kind of report was released was, Oh, there's you know there were no big decisions made here. Are they just not de deciding anything, or are they? 
And it felt like in some ways then people who participate in this and it almost kind of bristled at some of that coverage to think our job wasn't to come here and just vote on a list of things. Um, did you see any of that kind of coverage that was kind of looking, kind of covering the Senate as if it were a presidential election? Um, and then maybe how you saw the the work that came out of the, the group, um, the report that was issued and what was your feeling about how that was crafted and, and what its main goals were? Well, you know, I, I, I feel positive about the kind of coverage that has come out of the media, even when such coverage was critical. And why do I, I say this because, you know, people feel that the church continues to be a relevant community. If it weren't, we would not even be having this kind of coverage. You know, you don't engage with a dead reality. Mm. You only tussle with a living reality, you know, and we don't say bad things about dead people, you know, um, but we engage with, we, we tussle with, you know, we quarrel with living realities. And that's what the church is. And this this community is far from perfect. Uh, but that said, my own understanding of the synod is that I, 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 I come down on the side of process. And I keep insisting on the fact that what the synod allows us to do is to create a process precisely for addressing those tough, difficult, and challenging questions. And what this synod did, in my understanding, is to create the space for these questions to surface, not to close the door on them, but to create a space in such a way that people can continue to have the conversation. And as a consultative uh, body, the synod will be in a better position because of the conversation that is going to take place to make recommendations, proposals, and suggestions to Pope Francis when it reconvenes again in fall 2024. Part of the reason I think you were invited to participate as a voting member of the Synod was due to your work in helping to organize uh, some Synod activity throughout the Jesuit Conference of Africa and Madagascar, where you served as president. And, can you describe what the process was like as you were involved in it or how you see synodality playing out within that conference? I think very earlier on, I, I was particularly on a very personal level and again on a professional level as a theologian quite excited about Pope Francis's vision of a synodal church. I mean, when he, when he announced very strongly in 2015 that synodality is the path that God wants the church or invites the church to take in the third millennium, I said, wow, that's quite an invitation. And I, I certainly bought into his vision right away. But I also realized that if it was going to be a successful process, everybody needed to be engaged in it. So from the very beginning, the Jesuits in Africa and Madagascar, we made a commitment thanks to a general support of funding from a, a Catholic Family Foundation to create a process where we can facilitate participation, empower people to be engaged, and actually guide you know, the institution
institutions of the church in Africa, like the, the, the Symposium of Episcopal Conferences of Africa and Madagascar, to be actively engaged in this process. And to do this, we created what we call the African Synodality Initiative, which was working with theologians, working with local churches, local communities, parishes, dioceses, and umbrella bodies of bishops' conferences to really galvanize support and sustained commitment and involvement in the synodal process. I would have to say it probably was the most exciting thing I've done as a theologian, and I'm mm. very grateful for the opportunity and, of course, the outcome. Sure. So going through that, that process, and then also I think as the president of the conference in which you get to travel around and, and meet with Jesuit works and communities throughout the continent. Just curious for our listeners who would mostly be living in the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the US, can you tell us, what can you tell us about the Jesuit Conference of Africa and Madagascar? What makes it distinctive? What surprises people uh, when they learn about it? What, what's the state of the Society of Jesus uh, in JCAM uh, in these days? Well, I had the privilege of serving as conference president in Africa and Madagascar for six and a half years, and with colleagues on the Jesuit uh, Conference of Canada and the U.S., um, uh, colleagues like uh, Tim Kusicki and, and colleagues like Brian Paulson. And what I can say about JCAM is that it represents one of the very, I would say, um, it's, it's the future, it represents the future of the Society of Jesus along with uh, with South Asia as the place where today, one of two places where the society is actually growing. Mm. Um, it's a very young, young conference. Um, we have many Jesuits who are still in formation. And it's a place of hope, you know, hope for the future, that these are the Jesuits and our collaborators who will take responsibility for the future of the church. So I can say about the Conference of Africa and Madagascar that it's a, it's a vibrant uh, conference, it's a young conference uh, with people who are passionate about Jesuit life, uh, but also people who need the the guidance of wisdom and experience and depth of the universal society. So you've made quite a move uh, after serving as the conference president to come to the United States where you're just completing your first semester as a dean of the Jesuit School of Theology at Santa Clara University based in Berkeley, California. What has that transition been like? What was your first semester like, which again, you spent a month of in, in Rome, but um, yeah, just what what has been your uh, some of the, the highlights of your, your first few months on that job? Wow. Well, first of all, it's, um, it's a privilege and a grace to be invited to serve in this mission. And as a Jesuit, my uh, basic disposition is to be available to where the needs are greatest. And right now, it's here at, uh, at uh, Berkeley. It's been a wonderful three and a half months for me. The hospitality has been wonderful. Um, the support I've received from colleagues, from faculty, staff is wonderful. And engaging with the students, our students' um, population is over 50% international. So there is a lot of concentration of diversity here that I find stunning and also very important for what we do as Jesuits because it allows us to have connections and 
uh, contribute to the growth of the church across the world. <clears throat> this morning I was having a conversation with one of our doctoral students who is from Fiji, you know, a, a layperson uh, who is committed to the growth and formation of, of uh, seminarians in, on the island of Fiji. And I've, I'm grateful that we are part of you know, his preparation, his formation to be uh, a leader in that church, a lay leader in that church, a lay formator in that church in Fiji. So it's exciting. Uh, I think the best is yet to come, and uh, and I'm open to it. I'm not sure if you've been there long enough to kind of start to notice some of the, the priorities you want to have in leadership. I know some leaders say, well, you go to a place for a year and you get to know everything and take it all in, and then you, maybe you can start you know, bringing forward some of your ideas. But do you have any kind of uh, ideas or certain things that are close to your heart that you know you want to be focusing on in this role? Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, uh, we pride ourselves, as I wrote recently in one of my uh, publications, that we are an international center for culturally contextualized theology. But I want to add to that in a global context. Uh, a, a, an important priority for me is to open up the School of Theology uh, of Santa Clara to the world because we have resources that can benefit the church and this global society. And my, you know, it's, it's a passion of mine to make sure that the resources we have here in terms of the institutional capacity, the professional work of our faculty and our students and our staff are really at the service of the global church. And, you know, to give you an example, synodality is one of them. I want our school to be at the very heart of this synodal movement and contributing to ways of understanding and making the church a more synodal reality. That's very important for me. Uh, access is important because I believe that what we have as a resource can benefit a wider population of people within the U.S. and beyond if we're able to provide the resources that can bring the kind of students we want here and also give them the resources they need to live comfortably and to succeed. I want to follow up on one of the, the terms you used in that reflection, the culturally contextualized theology, which again, you have written about recently. Can you say more about what that means? And then what would be theology that's not culturally contextualized? Can you help us kind of understand yeah, I, what, what I you mean? Yeah, I can speak to that yeah. and say theology that is not contextually uh, a culturally contextualized is a reality, it's a, a theology that thinks and acts and behave as if, you know, it were just any other professional endeavor. It didn't matter whether it connected with people's lives. It's, in a way, it's doing uh, intellectual work just purely for the satisfaction of being an intellectual. You know, that's that's not how I see theology. I see theology that is culturally contextualized as a theology that takes seriously where people are. Theology locates itself within the framework of the community called church. And therefore, this community, as, as Vatican II so brilliantly put it, you know, it's a people with joys and hopes, with pain and anguish. All of this feeds into the work of a theologian. How does a theologian go to the frontier 
of people's expectations of, of, of pain and anguish, of joys and hope, and begin to articulate this in a way that people find meaning in how they live their faith, in a way that people take seriously even their relationship with God, in a way that people take seriously their responsibility as citizens of the world in a global church. So for me, a culturally contextualized theology sits with the people and learns with the people. This is what Pope Francis would say, so there's no original thinking here. Mm -hmm. I'm simply just rephrasing Pope Francis. I, I know that though that sometimes there is quite a divide, it feels like, between academic theology and the church as I live it, as a parishioner with three young kids who I'm toting them to choir practice later um, and we're at mass and keeping them under control and trying to teach and celebrating sacraments. Um, and then academic theology, which sometimes can feel like, oh, it's in this ivory tower and it's disconnected. So how for you, whether at JST, your own experience, do you think we can bring those things together? What, how will JST continue to be bringing the theology, that important academic work, certainly, um, but also then to in dialogue with the lived experience. What are some like practical ways we see that happening? The, the, a very practical way in which we, at least at the Jesuit School of Theology of Santa Clara University, try to do this is to ask the question, what are the needs and concerns of our students? Where are our students? Um, just recently, I was having a conversation with one of our students who's passionate about discerning deacons, you know, that we bring into our academic discourses. You know, earlier we talked about synodality, that we bring into our academic discourses. And, you know, so a, a very clear path for us is always to be discerning where our students are, what are their needs, and making sure that. In what we do, we are being responsive to those needs and to those concerns so that we don't disconnect from lived reality. One of the things we also do here is to reach out to the local community through our Hispanic Institute, uh, Institute to Hispanic. You know, and the idea again is to connect with the lived reality of the local church, knowing how that community is deeply, deeply embedded within the local church communities. So those are some of the ways we, and you know, I, the, the, you know we, we are always constantly, um, you know, making sure that our students, uh, in terms of how they are formed, are engaged in, in immersion experiences, in what we call field education, which really takes them out, you know, of this space that is academic into the space that is ecclesial, that is concrete, and is very contextual. Maybe we could, could go back in your own life story. I'm curious about what kind of led you to um, this work, your, your ministry as theologian, as, as administrator and leader. And uh, are you able to share any of your own vocation story, kind of going back all the way to, to the beginning, so we can just get to know you a little bit more before I let you go? Well, I think what I, what I can say is that if you had told me when I joined the Jesuits 37 years ago, I'll be doing what I'm doing today, I probably would not have joined the Jesuits. <laughs> because when I joined the Jesuits, my one sole desire was to be a priest amongst people. Because mm. that's what I saw the Jesuits doing. 
the Jesuits who inspired me to become a Jesuit were Jesuits working in local parish, you know, serving the needs of the poor, the sick, the marginalized. And that was very attractive to me. I just saw an option of life that I had never even imagined possible mm. in these Jesuits. And that had a very strong attraction for me. So my first desire was to be a priest amongst people and serving the needs of people in a very ordinary situation. But the Society of Jesus, um, being what it is, uh, determined that my path will be completely different. And here I am. <laughs> so do you, do you still find uh, the work of the Spirit in that in this work, that your that your vocation has turned out maybe differently than the novice uh, Bator would have thought. Yeah, um, it's a constant reflection that I have to make every day. But if you ask me at this particular time in my life, I feel deeply fulfilled to be doing what the society has called me to, which is to be involved in theological education and ministerial formation, knowing that I'm working with people who feel passionate, who feel committed, and who are devoted to reaching out to people on the frontiers and in different contexts in the church and making a difference. That's fulfilling when I think of it. Well, Father Arobator, thank you so much for taking the time to come on AMDG and talking about such a, a wide range of uh, things that you're working on. But I think all like with uh, some constant themes in terms of um, what Pope Francis would talk call encounter and accompaniment synodality, being on the way together. So thank you for your reflections on all those areas. It's my pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Music